This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger has been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I will love it if we beat them. This is football heritage. Con Giovanni, yeah, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. If you don't know the answer to that question, then I think you're, you, you, are, you are an ostrich. It's only been two weeks into the season, but the impact of VAR is already becoming evident. Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Second Heart, and joining me today is Andrew Conway. Hello. Andrew, just how is VAR changing the way we as viewers watch the game, and how does it change the way the players play the game? Um, I think as viewers, I think it's been overdone how much it is apparently changing the way we watch the game. I don't think we... I don't think we're really seeking out VAR. Like, often I, I have thought of it a couple... Well, not often, but a couple of times in the, in the last couple of weeks I've thought about, oh, maybe that's something that go to VAR and then invariably it doesn't go to VAR. Like an off-the-ball incident when someone gets kicked or pushed or, you know, was that going to be a penalty? And it's, it's obviously not. It doesn't even get checked back or yellow cards don't even get checked. So those aren't even being checked. So I don't think it's really changing much as a viewer. As a player, I noticed a lot more last season in the Champions League, certainly by the late later stages of VAR, how players started, you know, calling, going over to the referee and calling for VAR. And it's happened in Germany and it's happened in Italy as well, that players have learned to kind of play the referee and play the VAR card a lot more. Um, that hasn't come into the Premier League yet, but I imagine it's only a matter of time till it does. Well, I'm, I, I'm anticipating uh, the first yellow card for aggressively gesturing the VAR signal. Because apparently you get a yellow card for that in the same way that brandishing a yellow, an imaginary yellow card. Oh, really? Get you a yellow card. So yeah, I'm, I'm just waiting for that uh, glorious moment. Yeah, there's going to be some tough, tough lessons learned from a few players, I'd imagine, as things get, as things start to heat up in the whole VAR situation. I think it's still a learning process for everyone involved. The refs seem to be relatively on top of it, with the exception maybe Mike Dean, who is always a bit weird when it comes to VAR which is maybe just Mike Deanisms, but every other referee doesn't seem to be too you know hard pushed by it like obviously the the big incident this week was to do with the Manchester City Tottenham match but I did kind of enjoy when at the end of the match uh, some Manchester City players went up to I think it was Michael Oliver was the referee yeah. that match yeah and Michael Oliver would just point at his headset and be like yeah it's not my problem <laughs> like yeah. I didn't make the decision <laughs> So like that's gonna change that dynamic as well because like remember last season was it Neil Warnock that went up and properly shouted at whatever yeah. referee it was yeah like they can't really do that anymore no. unless it, it is a I can't even think of a scenario where it would come in unless they sent off a manager or something yeah well like you're you're right and it's and Michael Oliver is right and some I've heard a lot of people say you know it's abdicating the responsibility of the referee and stuff like that but I I tend to disagree with that because at the end of the day not to use the cliche too much but what is the role of the referee to enforce the rules to ensure the game is played in a fair manner and every and the result is fair or as best as it can and what's VAR going to do but ensure that that is more correct than previously when it was one person's opinion against everyone else's some say okay that's part of the game that it was the referee's opinion it was the referee's view of the game it was what was enforced now it's more of a committee when you have VAR and the referee both having, you know, the final say in a lot of decisions, but yeah, like it, it is good that it, it spreads the blame because like referees get far too much abuse as yeah. it is like, and I'm sure that's why Michael Oliver was happy enough to say, "Oh, it's not my problem." Yeah, uh, it, it, and it's definitely going to be interesting uh, to see how it goes throughout the season. Uh, one thing that I have enjoyed is 
the fact that it's not being used very often. Like, it's happened in the Manchester City matches, just mm. coincidentally enough, but it hasn't really come up much in the other matches that mm. I've watched. Like, okay, I know there's a couple goals that's allowed here and there, but no major incidents here uh, in other matches. Yeah, and some of them it's just a standard, like, a rigmarole to disallow a goal. Everyone's expecting it to be disallowed anyway because it's offside or the team just played on and everyone knew it was kind of offside. And I've seen that happen a few times. What was the... A major decision when it, once every six matches was the test case I think they did last season with the VAR system as it is in the Premier League. So, uh, and so far, I think that's roughly being about correct I think it's something near that obviously Man City are getting hit every week uh, in some form or another uh, with their matches but yeah like it, it is funny that it happened with Manchester City again like obviously they were playing Tottenham and finished a 2-all draw and it is just funny that it was it was against Tottenham last season as well that they got hit uh, yeah for the champion for the late winner was a Sterling scored a late winner in the quarterfinal. In the quarterfinal, yeah, and they, everyone and thought they'd won. Out. But it, like in fairness, like Pep wasn't the happiest after the match, and uh, it's understandable considering the dominance City had throughout the game. But at the same time, he did not like he didn't attack VAR that you know or you know blame VAR for anything. And uh, fair to say that Pep uh, that uh, Pochettino didn't either. Uh, the, he did attack Spurs, you know, lack of trying in the match, which is not uh, uncommon <laughs> in these type of situations. And Man City probably face that more than most clubs. Yeah, it was interesting because like uh, Pep Guardiola, I think, was mentioning before the match a lot how Tottenham are the best side, uh, second best side in Europe, just because they got to the Champions League final last year. Yeah, a bit sarcastically, uh, one might uh, one might think, but. Uh, like even against a side as good as Tottenham are, like the third best team in England last year, like the utter dominance that they shown was like kind of scary and kind of like worrying for the rest of the season. Like at this point, Man City games are becoming either the least interesting because they're just so dominant against the other team, or the most interesting because VAR comes in and, and messes everything up for them. Yeah, uh, and I think Spurs were the fourth best team in England last season. Oh, oh, yeah, they were. Yeah, Chelsea. Chelsea yeah. Uh, Everyone forgets about Chelsea. You gotta, you gotta factor in that Champions League yeah. final. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, that probably. Well, Europa League, you know, they actually won at Chelsea, did. Uh, that's not as good as a Champions League quarterfinal in my books. So, oh, okay. Uh, that's not quite the equivalent. So, yeah, it, it is an interesting. Like, Manchester City drop points. Liverpool had a pretty good week. They, they Not only did they win the Super Cup on penalties, but they actually have gained a two point advantage over their uh, title rivals early in the season. Yeah, it's crazy that we're already talking about any points dropped is a uh, is is something significant in the title race already two matches in, but it kind of does feel that way. That you know, I did speak to you briefly about it over the weekend. That I do feel that City have weakened their side from last season. That they do have defensive issues which were exploited on two occasions by Tottenham Hotspur. The Ederson clearly, you know. For all the greats of Ederson's play, he's a fantastic footballer, I think. He's he's a very good at his feet. Barely anyone can be better than him at his feet. His distribution's fantastic, probably the best in Premier League for a goalkeeper. But his shot-stopping, it always... And it seems to be always against Spurs as well. always seems to let him down. Like when yeah, like that is that is truly the difference between him and Allison. Like I trust Allison to save a shot like way more than I would Ederson. Yeah. Like, he, like obviously, Bravo had that one season at, at City where he was playing most of the games and... He was like a ghost in goal. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say Ederson is is that bad, but no. they're like that Lamella shot was really poor. Like his positioning was just terrible, and 
like most goalkeepers at any decent level should not be letting a shot in like it was a tamely hit shot not quite in the corner uh it was from far out so he had plenty of time to see it mm. i don't think there was anyone in his way either so, kane was like, kind of there but yeah i get what you like a professional goalkeeper yeah. at that level like that is elite level like should well, not was, be making that yeah mistake. it was weird because he kind of made his body as small as possible which is the opposite of what you'd want your goalkeeper to do in that kind of situation. He kind of congealed, congealed himself into a sideways position as the ball went past him. It's like, what are you doing? It's just yeah, bad but, goalkeeping. Oh, it, it, he, that was kind of the one low point in an otherwise uh, phenomenal performance from them. And, and it is, like we talked about in our preview last week, how like it is a bit weird that we're already thinking about who plays first and who plays second in title race. It's the second week of the season. But, yeah. Maybe the fact that Liverpool did pick up the three points was already playing on Manchester City's mind a yeah. little. Well, they are playing Spurs, as you said, the third best team in England last season. So it was a lot different than Liverpool playing Southampton. Though they did do well have following you know, their their ground-out penalty shootout win in Turkey on Wednesday night and coming back and having to play on Saturday right away against Southampton. And, you know... It, it it wasn't an easy game for them by any stretch of imagination. Southampton played well, and there is some injuries at the back for uh, Liverpool. Most notably, uh, Allison is out injured, and uh, Adrian stepped in again. Uh, maybe not as impressive as he was during the year Super League uh, or Super Cup final. But even Adrian like was uh, not at full fitness either because of that weird uh, injury he picked up at the in the aftermath of that final where. A, a fan got onto the pitch and actually slide tackled Adrian. Like there were concerns that he wouldn't be fit to play. Like his ankle yeah. was swollen, but he he did play, and it, I think that maybe did affect his his performance. And that's why he kicked the ball at Danny Ings. From yeah, that, two that was pretty funny. Like that was up there. I I saw a lot of side by side comparisons between that and Loris Karius in the Champions League final with Kareem Benzema's goal, where it was very similar. They kind of just passed them the ball. <laughs> Not quite uh, as catastrophic, though, for Adrian, considering it was a consolation goal in a Premier League game that Liverpool won as opposed to a, a Champions yeah. League final that they lost. Yeah, I suppose he has that saving grace, but uh, yeah, I wonder how many more matches he'll get. You, you know, uh, what was the quote you had about Klopp in the... Oh, Klopp, yeah, I don't, I don't have the specific quote on me now, but he said something along the lines of... Uh, uh, he compared Adrian to Alisson saying, oh, he made all the great saves that Alisson would, so it was good that he made the same kind of mistake that Alisson did because yeah. uh, Alisson made that mistake against Leicester I think this time last year yeah so it was par for the course was Klopp's uh, analysis of that yeah yeah it was uh, yeah that was well, not Adrian's finest moment but he, he 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 did get the win in the end yeah it's a moment he can he, he doesn't need to dwell on he can forget about it I suppose uh, but then uh, Frank Lampard's Chelsea will be dwelling a little longer on their one-all draw against uh, Leicester City. Just a, wor- a worrying performance, I thought. They look tired and haggard in certain positions, and it's not unsurprising considering the age profile. Like I think Chelsea put out the youngest side they've put out in a very long time last week. I think it was, wasn't it the youngest side in the whole Premier League last week? Uh, it was Man United with the youngest side last week, but Chelsea at the fifth youngest yeah, side. Yeah, so it wasn't was, too... It was still like 25 years old. Yeah, but of... it's funny because there's certain players in that in that like group of 11 that are keeping the average age down. Like, Pedro. Ke- Pedro. Well, they're keeping it down. Like Mason oh, Mountain, right, yeah. uh, yeah. Kepa and uh, Christensen. You know, these players Even are a bit... Zuma. Yeah, Zuma. These players bid on the younger side, and then Pedro and 
Aspilicueta and yeah, a few others that that are still lurking around the the Chelsea team, uh, really pushing that age age uh, average age up. Uh, they like there were some chances they created chances early on, but they just kind of tired as the match went on. It was like if this doesn't work in the first few minutes, it doesn't work. Yeah, like they obviously they played in the Super Cup as well, so yeah, so they, there is a they had that going yeah. against them, I suppose. But it like it, it was very similar to the way they ended up playing against Manchester United. Like against Manchester United, they started like a house on fire. The first ten minutes, they were all over the place in a, in the good way, uh, like chasing after the ball, winning it, creating a couple of chances. Like Abraham, Tammy Abraham hit the post uh, five minutes in, and then Mason Mount scored this week seven minutes in. So like they they clearly know how to start a game but it just feels like it kind of reminds me of uh Solskjaer's first few games when he was at Manchester United when he became Man United manager last year but he won those matches like like Man United they they would start off very quickly and then they would uh also very quickly then fade because they weren't used to running so much Mm. but the difference was Manchester United just were that bit more clinical and were able to see out those games because they won a few of those comfortably enough whereas like Frank Lampard is winless so far at Chelsea they lack they lack that clinical edge that top teams need to grind their way towards top four because like it is a long season you can't play well every week so you need to just get those matches where you just fluke your way almost to a one nil win and this is that kind of match that Chelsea really needed to get the result in because Frank Lampard can't go winless for very long uh and like it is at home it is his first match at home as well there, there was a decent atmosphere. Like the, it is a weird situation at Chelsea because obviously he's a club legend, so the fans are behind him. But like, I'd be very curious how they would be, how supportive they would be of this manager if it was literally any other person. Unless you know beige covered John Terry in the crowd. Yeah, like, uh, uh, yeah, it, it is. It is w- curious. Yeah, I get what I get what you mean with it. Like. A- as we've been told many times at this point, Frank Lampard has been guaranteed he'll be manager this time next year, so he can do whatever he wants this year, supposedly. And based on the owner's lack of interest in recent seasons, it's, it appears that that could well be the case come the end of the year that he's still there. Um, but I, I agree, it, there is a lot of worrying signs in there. The, he does, he, he did, in fairness to him, he didn't switch away from his uh, quote unquote philosophy. He is playing uh, an open game he is playing with a number 10 with a Mason Mount who did score in this match though I, there's a lot of fan for old Mason Mount scoring on his home Premier League debut in the Premier League and blah 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 but he scored because of a horrific mistake that left him with a one-on-one opportunity from inside the box like it's not the hardest goal to score in the world most of us would actually have a goal of putting him past a keeper from that range and he managed to do it in fairness but like Chelsea created very little after that they they didn't you know really add much to the team and much to the game and they really fell back and they like Kante was there he was doing his bits defensively so that kind of kept them in the match and he obviously has a point to prove against his old club as a, as anyone would in his shoes but um, it it is a worry that they become reliant on their defense and as last season proved their defense isn't the strongest and they've got rid of you know, Rudiger is still not back, and they got rid of David Luiz. So, like, eventually, these young kids who Zuma actually had a terrible weekend last week, it could happen more than once during the season. And as you made a point to me, if it wasn't for poor finishing from Leicester City, they should have run away with this match. Yeah, like that's. I just want to go back to a point there. Like you mentioned, Mason Mount as well. Like it is, it is an interesting contrast seeing uh, uh, Madison, James Madison, for Leicester on mm. the other side of the pitch 
Because it's not often now these days that we see two players playing in such similar positions, in such similar styles, mm-hmm. in like in the number ten role. Uh, and Madison, he started he started slowly in the way that Mount started really quickly. And while Mount faded, Madison then grew more and more into the game. And but for the fact that he just his link up play with Verity just seemed a little off sync. Uh, maybe the fact that I Iosa Perez was in there as well. They're not used to Perez as that kind of third factor. Maybe that will. Uh, grow as the season uh, goes on as they play uh, more minutes together uh like he was he was really impressive like he had a, a really good he fashioned a really good chance basically by himself that he just blazed over the crossbar if he maybe hit it a little softer or something yeah and took an extra second to look look up he might have got the winner there and Leicester definitely looked like the more uh, likely side to get a winner there at the end and like uh, I saw I think it was Adam Hurry on Twitter uh, put a picture up of uh, an out of context Frank Lampard's Chelsea uh, thing where it was like in the 94th minute uh, Leicester were 2-on-2 two two with both of their players in behind the Chelsea defenders uh, I obviously didn't lead to a goal but they're the scenarios that they're ending up in and they just look like they can be picked off so handily on the counter attack if you have any bit of competency about yourself and there are a lot of teams in this league that both are set up to counterattack uh, against regular sides, but especially love to counterattack against the bigger sides, yeah. and especially away from home. Yeah, uh, like Stamford Bridge is them. such a, a quick turnaround from one end to the other because it is the smallest or one of the smallest pitches in the Premier League. So you can get those opportunities very quickly in the team. Like uh, teams have done it to Chelsea in the past, even better Chelsea sides. Yeah, like I can see, I can see that being a, a real issue. Like that is that is the big test for Lampard for him to fix, because like midfield should be the part that he knows the most about. Like he he was a great midfielder as a player, uh, scored so many goals for Chelsea from midfield and played played a part of many uh, league winning midfields. You would think that uh, he would know something or two about uh, having a, a solid defense. Very seldom but, did he play in defense though. Or a solid, uh, like a solid defensive block, and yeah, and like he, you know, he played alongside uh, Makalele. Yeah, no, he played at very in very defensive teams at, at club level, no doubt. Like under Mourinho, under various other Chelsea managers, but the it doesn't seem like he. I don't. I I presume that this problem will be fixed, but the for a team that doesn't doesn't leap out with pace, they are playing a very expansive game, which obviously leaves those gaps in between, like layers of the field so there's gaps as you said where Madison occupied against uh, against Chelsea on Sunday that he was just kind of playing in between the lines and there was no one covering them because they were all turned the other way trying to attack even if they didn't have the ball so they need to become more compact I think it's very it's very obvious where the problem is and it's it's a case for Lampard to fix how does he maintain his like open forward philosophy of playing progressive football while also maintaining some sign of solidity in in midfield and defence. Like maybe it's a point he's trying to prove that the, his team can play a bit differently, but as you say, if if other teams are just watching the last couple of games Chelsea have played, if they want to play a counter-attacking game, just hold back and Chelsea will eventually not let them through. Like you're relying on genius of the, the likes of Pulisic who hasn't come through with it yet or the old guard in Pedro or Giroud to actually do something in the match. And if that doesn't work, then Chelsea are there for the taking. Yeah, and like just the, the final point that I, I want to make on this is, uh, like last season they had Mauricio Sarri as manager, who uh, at Napoli was uh, well known for his uh, expansive attacking style that saw his Napoli side score 
uh, a lot more than any other side in in Syria except for Juventus obviously like that was a team like he he was he's a manager with a, a record of getting his teams to score goals mm-hmm. but even his Chelsea side scored like they lacked goals last season despite having Gonzalo Higuain and Alvaro Morata as well for the extra six months both sides January and they're too well sure they didn't perform very well they, like no. that that was indicative of maybe the players around them as well as their uh, particular morale and confidence uh, at the club uh, and like Sarri couldn't get a tune out of them he couldn't get a tune out of pretty much any any of the attacking players except for Eden Hazard who had a pretty good season but Eden Hazard is not there anymore and sure they brought in Christian Pulisic in to replace him but like Pulisic didn't really look like he was going to step up to the plate yesterday grab the game by the scruff of the neck and get that winner and Lampard doesn't have that experience uh, or not an experience he doesn't have that CV I suppose of scoring getting his team to score goals in the way that Sarri did so I wouldn't expect him to be able to get his, get this poor Chelsea side to score more goals than Sarri could last season if you get me yeah. So that that would be a concern. Like I really do not see them scoring a lot of goals this season, and it is because of that that they need a solid defense. They need a solid midfield block to be able to cover the defense from counter attacks, and they just look so open that mm. it could be a really long season for Chelsea this year. Yeah, like I still have hope for Pulisic to to pull something out to kind of help with that. But yeah, I I can see definitely where those problems lie like it's it's problems that have persisted that they've always had an over-reliance on one player or maybe two players if you go back to Diego Costa with Eden Hazard when you know the the Mourinho season uh but yeah the those dependencies have now vacated the stadium so the Stamford Bridge is without a lot of goals so we'll see where where they can get them between now and the end of the season and uh, then just to wrap up in the news, the uh, European transfer market is still open across the continent, uh, even though it's maybe closed in England. So we're still seeing a few deals. Uh, Philippe Coutinho was announced this week. Uh, he's been shipped off. Shipped? Shipped? Shipped off. Uh, English is difficult. He's been shipped off by Barcelona there on loan to Bayern Munich, and it, this feels kind of like a bad move for all parties, to be honest. Well, Bayern, did you see the, the Instagram post that announced it was so odd? It was just a picture of uh, Philip Coutinho coming on as a substitute for Barcelona, I think in preseason. And it's like, oh, that's, uh, that's what I'm just saying Philip Coutinho has signed for Bayern. Yeah, like obviously he cost Barcelona a lot of money. Like yeah. this, is, this is one of the most expensive signings in world football. And he's just not done anything for the club at all like I can't really remember any standout moment that he had I remember he scored one really good goal in a really innocuous Barcelona match that I think they lost anyway yeah he had moments where he passed and he interchanged well with Messi but he was the wrong man in the wrong position I think at the wrong club he was never really what they needed at the time and he would just be coming in and replacing like he didn't really have a role in the team. The team, the team doesn't play a, a style of football that suits uh, uh, Philip Coutinho. It doesn't play with a traditional ten. It doesn't play with the type of uh, protected attacking, like second striker position that Coutinho can also play. So he was without a position in the in the team, and that kind of the writing was on the wall the whole time. Like unfortunately for him, he's he's going to Bayern Munich, who are in a, also a bit of a Teams of of a condition after you know losing Robin and at the end of the season last year and he's now the new number ten he's taken Robin's number so 
but apparently he's going to come in and play in the Hammers role from last season, which... Yeah, that's what's so strange yeah. to me. Like, uh, I don't see Coutinho as being a significantly bigger or better player than James Rodriguez, and James Rodriguez didn't really do that no. well last season. He, like, he had a good first season with trade under Japonke, uh, or at Bayern, under Japonke's, but with Kovac... Maybe it was Kovac, maybe it was Rodriguez, maybe it was a bit of both, but I just don't see Coutinho coming in and doing much better than Rodriguez did last year. Yeah, like it's funny saying it, but like Kovac's hanging on for dear life. If it wasn't for Borussia Dortmund throwing away everything last season, like there was no way that guy would still be at the club. But he, he's adjusting the team to play a bit more the way he wants to play. But I, I, I'd say the writing's on the wall for him to depart before the end of the season and maybe Bayern to have a better think about who they want to actually manage the club in the longer term rather than go for these parachute you know short-term fixes that I think they've had since Pep was there they tried to do something with Pep and tried to and obviously didn't want to keep him or he didn't want to stay long term but since then they've just had Ancelotti and then uh, Yup was in for a while and now they went Kovac and or Kovac is it Kovac? I think it's Kovac Kovac is in, uh, but like I don't know where they go to next. Like maybe the likes of Jurgen Klopp could be his name because been touted before, but could come in and actually do a more long term job because it's something that Bayern have been lacking. They don't have this kind of vision of play. They haven't had one really since like Louis Van Hal and latterly Pep, who kind of caramelized or whatever you want to say uh, Louis Van Hal's initial team and turned it into you know this machine that was all powerful and that's why they're on how many consecutive league titles are they on now uh six yeah i think this would be their seven i think they've won six in a row yeah like that's just that's other dominance but it's it's kind of null dominance just by buying the best players in the opposition teams and making them worse off that's kind of how they've done it and the Phil Coutinho doesn't seem like a thing that's going to fix or change any of that and be more progressive in the future yeah, it's another short-term uh, signing in a very short-termist thinking mm. kind of period for Bayern. Uh, but then uh, Itch Milan are being linked heavily now with Alexis Sanchez after their uh, attempt to sign Ed Dzeko failed. Of course, Ed Dzeko and Alexis Sanchez, very similar players. Why? Like, they, they've signed so many players over, you know, I suppose, like, in fairness, like, what's going on with Insigne? Do you mean Icardi? Icardi, sorry. Yeah, Cardi has basically been told he needs to leave the club. But they've still got a they've got a week or ten days to sort that out, and I don't know what's going on there because obviously Lukaku's been brought in to replace Cardi, and this Jekko move would have been a backup move, but yeah, he would have been like a Plan B option to use off the bench. So Sanchez is Perisic. I don't know. Yeah, because uh, yeah, Perisic is another player that's moved to Bayern Munich, uh, which you know, again feels like a short-term Absolutely. signing, but only because they couldn't get Leroy Sané due to that injury he suffered in the Community Shield. Yeah, but 31-year-old so. Perisic had a big money and Coutinho had a big money. Like, but Bayern's, Bayern are just using their huge like financial reserves to kind of waste money by the looks of things. And Inter don't have those huge financial reserves. I still don't I think find it very bizarre that they're able to make these moves and try and sign these players. Like, it'll probably be a good move for everyone involved, except maybe Inter, because Alex Sanchez, apparently, what was it you were telling me, that they've agreed personal terms, apparently? Yeah, it's been uh, reported that he's agreed personal terms with Inter Milan, and then it's basically a 15 million uh, loan fee, I think, is what they've offered Manchester United. And Manchester United just haven't uh, rejected or accepted that at this stage. Like, it would be a weird one for United, because they are... 
they are a bit lightweight up front this season. Like they like Rashford, Martial. Who else is there? Uh, they've Daniel James as well. Yeah, Daniel and J- Jesse Lingard. Jesse Lingard, who's you know, would you consider him as a centre forward striker option? Not really. Yeah, not really. Uh, but Sanchez, would you consider him a centre forward striker option? I'm not sure anymore. Uh, so I can understand why United just for to have the bodies and senior players. But if he is like that kind of distracting figure in the wrestling room and he has that huge financial burden that United are trying to get rid of what was he how much did it cost a week 400 500,000 uh, about 400 grand a week I yeah, think but that, yeah that number changes every week or so, so enormous like, down. enormous money yeah it's absurd it's completely destroyed the wage structure at the club yeah, like, so maybe so. getting him out of there might make everything a bit more harmonious yeah like the the fee or the deal that they proposed to Man United it would mean that Man United still pay a portion of his, of his weekly wages Yeah, but it's not been stated just how much of a portion that would be he could go, it might suit him like he's he's used to Italian football he played for years at Udinese, that's what got him his big move to Barcelona back in the day so maybe a return to that kind of slower pace of football might suit him at his advancing age, although you know, fitness shouldn't be an issue with Alexis Sanchez, but maybe the drive and motivation and hunger might be the problem. Well, like he just he over the last two years, he's just reminded me of when Wayne Rooney was kind of in that very similar period uh, of his career, where he was just winding down. He was still young, but mm. he was just off a cliff because he'd actually been around longer than most players who'd been at his age. Yeah, uh, like like with Alexis Sanchez, and I suppose with a lot of South American players. Uh, to some degree as well like there have been what five Copa Americas in the last seven years or something like that like that's a lot and there's another one again this summer as well or next summer so that's just a lot of a lot of running on those legs like so it's not a surprise that Sanchez has kind of fallen off a cliff to some degree and it's kind of sad because he was such a good talent like he he kind of fell off I think the start of his decline did happen at Arsenal but it was the end of his time at Arsenal like he was very good at Arsenal it was very crucial to uh, their uh, kind of FA Cup wins kind yeah, of yeah, yeah there are few FA Cups and their good Premier League performances uh, and then just finally in the transfer window this is not about necessarily a move per se but a lack of move it seems like uh, Gareth Bale will be staying in Real Madrid after all yeah he made a surprise cameo there at the weekend <laughs> for some bizarre reason He's back in the squad. Uh, I, d- I don't really get what they're doing at Real Madrid. Obviously, they couldn't find a buyer that was, uh, you know, agreeable to them, for the lack of a better phrase, because I know those bids came in from China. Uh, but I think the, I think the problem with the, the uh, offers from China is that they weren't willing to pay a fee for the player. They were just willing to pay his wages. Yeah. Which- Florentino Perez was like, well, well, wait a minute, if you've got all this money to pay his wages, surely you've got a bit of money to pay me. Yeah, but now he's... the whole thing. Yeah, now he has to just pay Gareth Bale's wages and not get the fee yeah. at the same time, which is probably a, a cop-out. Like, they're still recovering, like, in fairness to Real Madrid, they're... Having got rid of Ronaldo off their wage books last year, they're probably still in, like, in a good position, or they're probably still in the surplus over that. So can't they can't afford Bale, but... Yeah, they it would have been a good idea to get get him off the books this year because his value is only diminishing and those wages aren't going anywhere. Yeah, like it, it, like apparently it's Zidane now has come out and said like he is in the side, he is to be used in the squad, and it's similar with Hamas Rodriguez who was flogged out, was all about to sign for Napoli at one point, and that fell through because of a 
uh, disagreement on the fee and then he was about to go to Atletico Madrid and then all of a sudden Real Madrid lost 7-3 to them in a friendly in, over the summer and decided, wait a minute, we can't sell any more players to this team that just beat us. Yeah. So uh, they've got two players there that Zidane doesn't really like, doesn't really want, but they're kind of just stuck with them and they've got injuries in the side mm. and it's kind of forcing them to uh, forcing Zidane to actually use these players. I know, it's as if, you know, he, he long-term think, thinking and then uh, ostracizing players, you know, should go hand in hand, but uh, they don't at Real Madrid. They just do whatever they want and then have to completely go 180 the following week. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. The, the game's in a really poor state for people diving, feigning injury, all sorts. Um, and I just found it peculiar. I was at a Premier League meeting a couple of weeks ago and they actually told us the worst that can happen is a yellow card. And I said, well, that means basically every player in the Premier League can cheat at least once a game. So have you ever thought about that? Because I said, I don't know another professional sport or, or a sport for that matter where they actually tell you, you can cheat once a game and you just get a warning. I've never heard of that ever in any other sport. Yeah, really simply, just ban them. Yeah, it'll go. It'll go. It'll be out of football within a month. Because if you're a manager, why would you want to lose your best players? If, by the way, it is your best players that are doing it, it might not be your best players. But the point is, why would you want to lose players over a, which actually, when you think about it, is a bit of a silly thing, really. But it's grown into a not a silly thing. It's grown into a level where it's every week now. Following his Burnley side two-one defeat away at Arsenal on Saturday, Sean Dyche was asked about diving a simulation. He has been a very vocal critic of its widespread occurrence in the game, but his side have also been criticised for their rough approach to tackling and pressing. Should referees be looking to send off divers, or should they actually be offering more protection to them? It's it's a long, complicated story. I think, personally, Sean Dyke has been beating this drum for a long time. I remember when he was back at Watford in the Championship, and he was having a go at players doing it back then. He probably has been doing it since he was a coach at Chelsea. Who knows how long he's been at it, but... It felt like a bit of an excuse or a distraction away from his own side's performance at the weekend. Like they did manage to get a goal back against Arsenal, but beyond that, they showed very little. They were pinned back a lot, and kind of it was more reminiscent of the performances of Burnley latter half of last season, where they were showing a lot of relegationist form. And I think it's a, a distraction tactic from Sean Dyke, and he's been an, at it for a while with those type of uh, you know all oh, the foreign players coming here, ruining our game type of type of stories and he's the last bastion of that currently in the Premier League I would say there's no one else really like him of his ilk that are practicing management in the Premier League at the moment so that 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 aside I think with diving it's not as endemic I don't think as as it ever is put out to be like how often how often is diving a massive issue in modern football now when we actually were to sit down and analyze it, like especially in the Premier League, where I don't, th- I think it's the least, you know, bad country for diving in terms of the European major leagues. Uh, like, wh- when's the last time you remember a really, like, obnoxious dive that wasn't punished either th- directly there and then or after in the following weeks, where that player would not get free kicks or would be, you know, considered a diver, labeled a diver for weeks or months to come. Well, like that was actually one of the the minor rule changes that came in. I think two years ago now, that has I think kind of just solved the issue to some degree in a like really quiet way. Because remember, was it uh, was it Arsenal against West Brom? I think there was a penalty for Arsenal where the 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 player dived. I could be getting this fixture completely wrong. There was some instance two years ago where a player dived, and then it was reviewed 
at the during that midweek by three independent panelists and then they ruled that that person did die for the penalty and they were suspended for two games in the in the league yeah and that uh, that that i think is like the only instance where that has happened where the players actually gotten the suspension because i think once that happened everyone decided okay we can't really get away with diving in in the penalty box anymore and thus it's not worth it to, it's not worth getting a two-game suspension just to maybe get a goal from a penalty. And I think diving outside the penalty box isn't necessarily as big of a problem. Like, Sean Dyche called it cheating. But, like, you get a yellow card for a foul. Like, that's cheating yeah. as well. Like, I don't see why we need to send off people that dive. Yeah, I think it's a bit bizarre for him to say, oh, every player gets uh, one goal at cheating in a game. I don't know that in any other sport. But the the whole a foul is a form of cheating most of the time you do you do get unforced errors you do get unforced fouls where something happens by accident but i would say 80 percent of the time most fouls are intended you're trying to bring a player down like look at Joao felix uh over the weekend where he he ran from one box to the other and eventually winning a penalty he was try, like those guys trying to bring him down like four or five times in that in the course of that run we're all trying to cheat we're all trying to break the rules we're all playing unfairly yeah, like that's that's kind of where his his wording in that answer uh, kind of just baffles me a little. Because like diving, I, I like I know a lot of people get really riled up about diving, but I I never really saw it as that big of an issue. Because like they're professional footballers, they they want to win, and sure, it's maybe not the most morally uh correct thing to do to try win in this way, but they're gonna try win in any which way they can. Like I think it was a. Uh, Diego Maradona brought up the, you know, football is a game of deception, and that is, the, diving in the penalty box to win a penalty is almost the ultimate deception, besides yeah. maybe the hand of God. That's a pretty good deception right there. Yeah. Uh, but, like, I think it, as long as referees spot it and yellow card the offender for it, which we spoke about last week as they started, they've started doing it now, possibly because of VAR, possibly because it's a directive, who knows, maybe it's just because it was the first weekend of the season. Hmm we'll see later in, as it plays out later in the season but as long as the player gets the yellow card I don't see it as being that big of an issue and even then like if you get a free kick out of it from the 50 yard from the halfway line it's not the biggest footballing crime in the world either no it's not and but I, uh, that's what brings me back to a point is like there's some ulterior motive similar to last week when we had Pellegrini talking about you know how Man City were going to get free kicks or they weren't being given free kicks against Man City even though they were rotationally fouling you remember that whole thing it was like an excuse a prepared excuse that Sean Dyke came in to those post-match press conferences angry and he had a he had these reasons ready to be angry because he he, he was vexed throughout the match but he had no solution for getting outplayed as he was on the day and it like if if really that diving was not an issue during that match against Arsenal at the weekend really wasn't I can't really think of any situation that was like a major you know source of acrimony for him to to make him go out and make those statements it was definitely something he had you know cogged already and you know already concocted in his head like it, much worse than that was probably his own team's performance in terms of their their physicality and not that there's necessarily anything wrong with their physicality but like if his players had been a bit cuter about what they were doing and they were very cute in a lot of ways maybe he wouldn't have had as much complaining to make about uh, diving of the opposition yeah and like that's where I think a lot of this becomes a really interesting debate because 
obviously, like uh, the question I posed to you is, should they be offering more protection to the divers, which is maybe sounds a little ridiculous. But when you actually think about it, like I uh, us go back to these two players, Wilfred Zaha and Eden Hazard players who maybe have a reputation for going down a little easily but they're also two players that get tackled uh, way more than the average footballer yes. and like they're the evidence is shown on their legs every weekend like where they're bruised up they've got strapping around because they're getting kicked all over the place and referees are doing nothing to help them so i suppose the easiest way for them to maybe actually get a bit of help from the referees to go down that bit easier like yeah. that's why they like dive because you know they go down easily they go down to the ground very quickly because they would rather that than get kicked yeah like you you invoke the name of Diego Maradona earlier on like that's Maradona used to have to wear pads all up and down his legs because the amount he was kicked during his career Chris Waddle I brought this up before Chris Waddle's made it when he played in England and when he played in France he used to get fouled in the first couple of minutes a few times of every single match he ever played because he was identified as a skillful player beforehand and the job of at least one player in the opposition was to give him some manners, kick him up in the air and stuff like that, which Sean Dykes Burnley players were doing to, say, more talented players than Burnley player Burnley had as well at the weekend. So if there there is something to say like uh, that maybe those players would go down and maybe invoke a yellow card quicker if they do make a bit of a meal of the of a of a f- obvious foul plus there's the other thing that advantage is not a rule that is often played very well in football in soccer it really isn't i i it's much better employed in other sports like rugby where an advantage is clearly given and clearly taken away by the referee and it's announced to the team like there is the referee pointing and say giving an advantage but there it very seldom goes back to a yellow card unless it was really obvious that it was deserving of a yellow card and you know in football a lot is let go because of that and I, I don't necessarily agree with that I think a lot of things could be brought back because you know players don't necessarily go down as easy and they don't make a meal of it so the offending player doesn't get disciplined for it or brought back or spoken to even let alone a yellow card yeah like it, that is actually I think uh, an interesting point because uh, I think referees are fairly good at like sure the advantage doesn't lead to anything and the team doesn't get anything for it. That can be frustrating. But I think referees, generally speaking, are good at going back to the uh, offending player that caused the advantage and actually giving them the yellow card. I feel mm-hmm. like they've gotten good at that over the years. So, uh, but that is, yeah, that's interesting because, like in rugby, like uh, just to use that example, like advantage can last for ages. Yeah. Uh, which I suppose is maybe just because that's how. The two sports are played like in, in rugby it's very like they go through their phases and all that whereas in football there isn't really phases in that same way there's just the one attacking phase yeah it's continual play phase yeah. again yeah there's a lot more transition yeah that, basically yeah and uh, that, it's fair enough they're not directly comparable but maybe a bit more clarity on when advantages start and end would be you know much appreciated especially because that's actually gotten less clear over the time because usually you'd see like Mike Dean was the most obvious one they threw throw up the two hands while they're running which always looked kind of awkward mm. so they've now just let them throw up one arm and now some referees just don't even bother keep the one arm up much yeah. and all, like they just kind of decide in their own head when advantage is over and when it's not yeah you see that's it, it's just it's not the best system I think and it's something that has to probably be reviewed in the coming years and i can i can imagine it will be reviewed in the coming years and it's interesting as well because like uh, we didn't really cover spain yet because uh, you know we're obviously waiting for uh, for everything to come back before we really delve into the european football but 
uh, Luka Modric was sent off uh, for Real Madrid. His first straight red card, uh, I think it was career perhaps, but definitely Real Madrid anyway, uh, against Celta Vigo on Saturday, where he kind of stood on the Achilles player on the Achilles of uh, the, his opponent mm. and like looking at it you're thinking well it's, it's like an orange card yeah but uh, apparently this is a directive in Spain at least that like any kind of uh, stamping on any any part of the body is just a straight right card yeah. now and they will it will be reviewed by VAR yeah. so it's another interesting aspect of this whole uh, like kind of rough and tough of the sport that uh, that we're looking at like yeah, and I, I think that's my, like, while I agree that maybe a red card, a straight red card isn't warranted all the time for those type of challenges, if that's what they've decided they want to do to, to excuse the pun, stamp out a certain type of tackle or challenge or injury from occurring, that is what has to be done. And to go back to Sean Dyke's original point, you know, maybe disciplining players and giving red cards will adjust behaviour very quickly. I, it'd be funny if suddenly that the rough and tumble type of game that Sean Dyke teams like to play might start being uh, picked up on more as a result of his comments we'll, we'll, we'll see in the coming weeks yeah it certainly would be ironic if it's actually his style of play that gets uh, is detrimental or becomes detrimented is that a word I don't know but he does like his teams do flirt the lines of breaking the rules because like uh what what's the name of the centre forward that I always forget the name of? Uh, uh, Ashley, Ashley Burns. Burns was do messing around the whole match against Arsenal. He's, he put, like it was part of his game. It's part of what he does as centre forward. He's not a speed merchant. He's not a thirty goal a season player. He's a guy that gets goals when he has the opportunity, but also makes himself a nuisance for the majority of the match. And he was pushing and shoving and kicking and probably getting his own fair share back as well from the Arsenal defenders during out the whole match. And then at the very end, and I presume this is the bit that that probably got. Uh, the blood boiling of Sean Dyke at the very end Kolasinac ran to, to kind of push with uh, Ashley Barnes kind of kind of shrove him and he, he picked him out that he knew what he was going to do and Ashley Barnes reacted and got a yellow card for pushing back and it was coming the whole match but it was a, a, a clever cupid of play from the Arsenal player which was something he if one of his players had done he probably would have applauded so yeah and just uh to bring it all the way back to where we started this whole show like with var it's going to be interesting to see like how much that actually starts picking up on these kind of incidents yeah uh i'd like to see it pick up more at least in the kind of post-match analysis so maybe that if they do go back and start analyzing how they're doing and performance wise and what they're picking up and what they're not picking up that maybe these little slight rule breaks while innocuous most of the time they do tend to make the game a bit worse like it, it it could be the Burnley you know off the ball fouls uh, or just little little nigs and pushes and like little stomach punches and stuff like that like niggly tackles like that are, are you know they're not the worst thing about the game but on the other hand people are complaining about Man City's rotational fouling and if it picks up on one it should pick up on both yeah yeah I, I would agree with that it's it's, it's... That kind of fouling, like it, it feels like it is the next evolution of uh, where we go and like pick up on yeah. uh, the rules. Because obviously the handball rule has been kind of flagged up uh, this week because of the Man City incident, and the offside rules flagged up last week because of that all that other Man City incident. Yeah. So it's interesting that all these rule changes are kind of being, are not rule changes, but these rules are being analysed because of Man City. But yeah, Burnley, I think, are another 
uh, another side that we could throw in with Man City there for that kind of fouling yeah, to maybe be looked at. When I was uh, getting ready to look ahead to the fixtures this week, I was actually slightly concerned that it might be an international break because there is one in September. Oh, no. But don't worry, we're... Andrew, my fears were pointless. We're still <sighs> we're still a couple of weeks away from that uh, ridiculous international break, and actually we've got a pretty interesting set of fixtures coming up next week. The big one being Liverpool versus Arsenal. How do you see that one going? I can only really see the home victory in that for Liverpool because despite Arsenal's improvement this season, Liverpool are just, they are the second best team in England and I don't think Arsenal are quite there yet or quite that close to them as yet. They they have started well in the season, but Liverpool are still that much better and there's not much to tell me that, what was it, 5-1 the last time they met at Anfield last year? Yeah, despite Arsenal like, taking a 1-0 lead in that game, I think. Yeah, yeah uh, Maitland-Niles with his first goal and celebrating like mad and then they lose 5. Imagine scoring your debut goal at Anfield being 1-0 up for a relatively strong team and then losing 5-1. Yeah, It's pretty... Like, uh, like Liverpool-Arsenal, I think, has been the fixture that I always look forward to the most in, in the season because like Why is that? it feels like they have the craziest matches over the years they do have entertaining matches we've had four alls we've had uh three goals in stoppage time on at least two occasions there was the uh, three all draw at the emirates at christmas a couple of years yeah. back as well there's the four three on the opening day there's the there was another three all draw with olivier Giroud's corner late goal there was some defender kyle naughton ended up playing striker for Jurgen klopp at one point there yeah, was going like back the, to Andre Arshman scoring four goals against Arsenal yeah. or against Liverpool at Anfield while they're going for the title back in 2009. Like yeah. Yeah, this is a fixture that throws up crazy games, especially at Anfield. But also, yeah. I feel like Arsenal's record at Anfield is pretty dreadful in recent years. Well, yeah, just the Brendan Rodgers and the last season kind of really <laughs> strike home, strike home, like with with Arsenal that they 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 don't go there and get results. Uh, and I don't like for as I said for all they've had in positives over the summer and over the first couple of weeks of the Premier League season, I still see it as a probably a Liverpool victory. Even though Liverpool against say so-called stronger teams do not perform the best, oftentimes, certainly in the last six months or so, uh, like the Man United match comes to mind, and even the Champions League final also comes to mind, where the and the, the Super Cup final where they played against English teams who were of a higher calibre than the, you know, the rest of the league. And they've struggled at times because their team isn't sitting back the whole time, which kind of... The team sitting back against Liverpool kind of makes them come on and press very high and gives them a lot more onus to kind of get at teams and make them make mistakes. And the bigger teams don't necessarily make the same mistakes. Yeah, like this is... Like, I don't want to build this up too much or hype it up too much just in, in the uh, off chance that it ends up being a drab and all draw. Like, I don't, I don't want to Could get happen. expectations too high, but, like, just thinking about it, like, that's that's a good point about Liverpool that they've not played as well in the big game, especially, uh, which is interesting because that was Klopp's trademark when he first arrived at Liverpool, that they would yeah. lose the lesser teams but beat the, the so-called bigger teams. But, like, Liverpool defensively have been that bit shakier at the start of the season already. They they haven't kept a clean sheet in their first three games. They've conceded five already. Uh, it's five? Four? Four, game, four already. 
uh, Adrian obviously in goal is not as good as Allison, which is you know a pretty high bar that Allison is setting. And Arsenal also defensively not very solid, maybe a little bit more solid than last season, but that's you know they set a very low bar last season. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we'll actually see uh, a first start for Nicolas Pepe, which would be very exciting. Yeah, um, away at Anfield, away at a big team, it's probably it's due for a start for him. Although the young fella Reese Nelson has done okay at Arsenal but he is very raw and very young and he did get subbed in both matches but it'll be interesting to see if Pepe does get a start because he will have they would put him up against Andy Robertson and you'd be like oh Andy Robertson hasn't been tested since probably playing when Man City last season was the last time he was tested on that on his side of the field maybe really. against Barcelona yeah obviously Messi <laughs> and Messi did show him but yeah it's been a few months and necessary like without saying that you know, someone of that caliber has really come come up against them, and without having a huge amount of defensive support in front of him, it will be a handful for him. And will that debilitate Liverpool going forward? The other side, like their defense has been a bit shakier, but I think that comes a lot from trying to reintegrate Oxlade Chamberlain to the starting lineup, who is a little less defensively disciplined, and obviously having Allison out makes their goalkeeping a bit, you know more suspect as one of those goals that you just spoke about would not have gone in if any other keeper in the world probably was playing that match because it was a ridiculous mistake that it would not be repeated often so they are a bit shaky but uh, and they are against a strike force you know at the moment uh, Aubameyang just keeps on scoring goals in every match and Lacazette's also scoring for Arsenal Ozil might be back for his first start of the season as well which you know if you get Ozil on a good day with those two in front of him playing firepower with the creativity and kind of wild card that Nicolas Pepe could provide and with you know the kind of balance whoever they put on the left hand side as well it, it could be open for a lot of attacking prowess from the Arsenal players the only problem with all of that being said is that Arsenal still have a like an unreliable inconsistent and at times messy defense behind all of those players yeah and like it is interesting because like you know emery had a, a actually kind of a funny quote uh this week after or i think it was after the burnley match saying uh for us we don't want to play against liverpool ever we prefer not to play against them like which kind of i think ep- emphasizes like i think a little bit of that is trying to build up your opponent to maybe knock yourself down yeah. a little just to kind of set expectations a little bit like and i don't think he's being 100 percent serious but i suppose it to show like you know, this is a quality Liverpool side. Yeah. Uh, getting points against them is going to be difficult for anyone, let alone yeah. a, a side as good as Arsenal. Yeah, absolutely. He was just fielding one of those standard questions of, you know, is this a good time to play Liverpool given that, you know, they're early in the season, they're not playing that well. They've played a lot of matches already in pre-season and in the start of the season. Like more, like at least two more matches than Arsenal play competitively. Is this a good time to face them? And it's like, there's never a good time to face Liverpool. I never want to play Liverpool. Because they are one of those top teams. You don't necessarily want to play a top team if you're not a top team as well. And Arsenal aren't at that level yet. Uh, and then it is also interesting that they once again play before Manchester City. So like they could, if they do beat Arsenal, uh, it'll be a chance to go five points clear of Man City already. Uh, yeah. this early in the season because they, they go away I do wonder will things stabilise should be stabilize. fair as a, a fixture they seem to always win comfortably enough generally but there's a Bournemouth of surprise a few this season they've surprised me certainly but they're the way they've been playing but to bring it back to the, the, the kind of title race in, if we're going to call it that already like the, there is an opportunity for that I do wonder whether things will stabilise whether things will 
you know, go back to a kind of norm where teams can drop points at the beginning of the season or the middle of the season and it not matter as much. Like, I don't see this being another 100-point season or near 100-point season for one or, or even two teams. I expect the league champions to be in the 80 points, somewhere in the 80s. and But for that to happen, a lot of points will have to be dropped between now and the end of the season. So I wonder, will this kind of psychological block on these teams of the world, everything meaning you cannot possibly drop points. Is that how Liverpool are going to approach this match? Is that how Man City are going to approach their match against uh, Bournemouth? Yeah, like I feel like that kind of mentality can almost end up with you getting paralysed by the fear of dropping points. Yeah. And it inevitably leads to you dropping more and more points than you probably would have anyway. So, Which I think is what happened to Liverpool last season when they were leading the league, if you remember. Yeah. Like they, they kind of couldn't cope with that. But then once they were in second again, they won every single match and then at the end of the season, or at least didn't lose any matches. Yeah, it, it really is uh, an interesting. Like, it does feel like we're, we've just picked up where we left off. And like it felt weird that Man City dropped points, even to a side like Tottenham uh, at the weekend. So, which is slightly concerning for me, uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it felt kind of weird. Like it already sort of feels like, yeah, that's advantage Liverpool, even though like this is their first big test, whereas it was Man City's big test last week, the first one. Yeah. Well, and I still would hold up the the notion that Man City would still be my favourites because they've done it before. They have the experience, and Liverpool have you know history in dropping these points from a leading position and. I'd, even though they are ahead right now and the, even though they could extend it further at least temporarily over the weekend I don't see them being able to maintain it in perpetuity for the whole season yeah and uh, this uh, this uh, bring it back to the Liverpool Arsenal match should be at least an entertaining one regardless of result oh absolutely I expect goals oh yeah I, I would hopefully expect goals as well the strike force of Arsenal and the absolute hames of defence they have has to lead to goals at both ends yeah Arsenal the true entertainers of the Premier League this season yeah uh, that'll do us for this week uh, obviously uh, Manchester United have not played Wolves yet so that's why we didn't really bring them up uh, if you're listening to this after that uh, and I, I feel like we got through what a 10 nil victory for Wolves yeah it was incredible like Solskjaer has already been sacked like how yeah I know thought like, uh, exactly the prophecies come through yeah very early actually like you know I would have thought it'd uh, be a little later than that uh, but uh, thank you for being here Andrew thank you for having me Dan. and uh, let's, let's sit back and relax and uh, enjoy this uh, week of fixture feast of fixtures we've got ahead of us oh yeah uh, and thank you for listening thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. You can also follow us on social media at the TF Pod on Twitter and Total Football Pod on Instagram. You can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. The more the merrier. That's what we always say. <laughs>